4: Hey, this is Annie. and Samantha, and welcome to Stuff I'm Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. I am excited about today's classic because we're we're bringing back an old one. Um, it's a two-parter, Ooh. yes, on women in comics, and I. Find the history of comics fascinating. People know I love superheroes here. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, did you read any comics growing up, Samantha? Not Just a nope. one.
1: Nope. Not a single one. I would, every now and then, the Sunday comics. Uh-huh. If I went to my grandparents' house, who got the Sunday newspaper, but that was about
5: it.
4: I, I mostly read X-Men. That was my, my thing. But I did read some Batman, some Wonder Woman, some Superman. And I guess... I did read The Avengers when I got older. I've definitely read all of those now. And a bunch of indie ones that I'm really blanking on, and it's making me really mad because I know they're really good, and I want to shout them out, but I can't think of them. I did read Walking Dead, some horror comics. But um, I love it, and I love the art of it. Yeah. Uh, I And that's one of the reasons I love Spider-Verse so much. right? Because I love that they used that art. It feels right. like a comic has come to life. I think it's very nostalgic. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, but there are certainly, and especially through this job, I've I've come to find out a lot more about it. There's certainly some problematic things in the history of comics. Obviously, very yes. much. There are some storylines that I read, and I'm I am shocked, right. that they got published, right. Um, and so, as as more women do get into this industry, and we do, we are starting to see changes of that. I'm glad. I'm glad that the audience, they're finally realizing there's an audience of people that are into this that are women or non-binary. Um, and and they're starting to make stuff for them with them in mind. I think that's really great. But yeah, yeah, there's, a, there's quite a long way to go. And I would love to come back. I just read an article this morning on... Um, the history of Miss Marvel slash Captain Marvel and the history of like how feminism really influenced that character. Mm-hmm. So maybe in the future, we will get to, to talk about that. But in the meantime, we hope you enjoy this classic.
0: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And this episode on women in cartooning initially started off as just a run-of-the-mill podcast episode. Mm-hmm. We ran across a fantastic article by Lisa Hicks over at Collectors Weekly, which is mostly an interview with Trina Robbins, who is a cartoon historian and has written a number of books specifically focusing on women in cartoons most recently, Pretty in Ink. And we started reading the article and we quickly realized, oh, this is not just one podcast.
5: No, I mean, it's it would be impossible to condense cartooning and comic and comic book history, especially in regards to women, in, into just one episode, especially when, you guys, there's an entire golden era of comics that we have to tell you about not to mention all of the interesting stuff going on today in the industry. So for part one of our look at
1: women and cartooning and comics, we're going to go back in history and sort of lay the groundwork leading up to and through the golden era of comics. And yeah, we are combining like cartoon strips with actual comic books. And for comics... Just one note on that. We're really focusing on the creators. We're not looking so much at the characters in them. But, of course, the creators influence the kinds of characters Mm -hmm. that you then see reflected in strips and books. So, pardon us, though, for purists out there, for us condensing both of them together. But, first of all, let's talk about, quite possibly, the very first published
5: female cartoonist in the United States. Yeah, Rose O'Neill might be best known for her cupy drawings that she made, those little cherub cheeked children that actually my mother finds incredibly creepy. She can't even say the word cupy without making a face, unfortunately. You're kind of making a face, too. <laughs> well, I know. I just... Yeah, I don't understand all the time my mother thinking things that are are weird. But anyway, so let's get back to Rose O'Neill and get off of Sally. So at 13, at the tender age of 13, Rose O'Neill won an art contest prize for her drawings. And when the judges realized that the winner of the prize was a girl, they made her sit down and reproduce the drawing in front of them because surely a girl would not be talented enough. But she proved those people wrong. Yeah, and she was highly successful as an illustrator from a young
1: age. So in 1896, when she was just 20 years old, Truth magazine bought and published her comic strip, The Old Subscriber Calls, which is possibly the first published comic strip by a woman. And The Old Subscriber Calls is essentially a quick strip about an old magazine subscriber coming to the magazine office, and he's not very happy about it. And there's this tidal wave that also comes in, and then he leaves, and the publisher's like, well, I'm glad we
5: survived that one. Well, the joke which I I love so much and appreciate having worked at a newspaper for four years is that the whole punchline is that the subs- when the subscriber comes in and he's so angry and he beats up the editor, the editor doesn't care that he just got himself beaten up. He's just glad the subscriber didn't cancel his subscription and they didn't lose that revenue. And the fact that I chuckled out loud at that, that cartoon from 1896, I love that it's still it's still totally relevant because I feel like people in newspapers today are still like just don't unsubscribe, please.
1: You're an old soul, Caroline. I guess so. Caroline loves those 19th century
5: punchlines. <laughs> Exactly. I I really do. Uh, So but before this, uh, O'Neill had already been selling her illustrations to other magazines and newspapers. So she was at 20 sort of an old hand at this. But we do have to look at the context of the time also in which this is going on. For instance, in 1895, you have RF Outco's Hogan's Alley, better known as the Yellow Kid, which was published in Joseph Pulitzer. Yes, that Pulitzer, his New York World newspaper. And The Yellow Kid was the first commercially
1: successful comic strip published in a newspaper, which was quickly followed up by strips like Little Nemo and Slumberland, Crazy Cat, etc. And these newspaper comic strips would remain the predominant form of comics until the 1930s, when comic books would slowly come around, even though, of course, in the newspapers you would still have cartoon strips but while all of this is happening at the close of the 19th century Plenty of other women, in addition to Rose O'Neill, were getting in on the comic strip game as well. Because you have to keep in mind, too, that with Pulitzer and Hearst and all these big names in publishing rising up, and you have these newspaper wars going on, I mean, print journalism, or if you could call it journalism, really, at the time, but print publishing was so huge, and there were so many different outlets for people to get um, their cartoons published. So you have people like Grace Gebby and her cartoon Naughty
0: Toodles,
1: <laughs> who uh, Trina Robbins, a comic historian, uh, attributes, quote, setting the tone for comic strips for the next 30 years. And so she says that because a lot of the early comic strips that you see heavily feature these, Chubby cheeked babies and kids just goofing around. And Caroline, while you were busy chuckling at the old (laughs) subscriber calls, I was chuckling at naughty toodle strips, which is essentially uh, about this naughty toddler girl who always disobeys her mom and mispronounces words. Uh (laughs) So she's naughty toodles. (laughs) <laughs> and she like sprays her mom with a hose and is always getting into all sorts of trouble
5: I hate when toddlers spray me with hoses Yeah who doesn't Caroline <laughs> um <laughs> But yeah, so this, this Grace Gebby character, she used uh, went by a pen named Grace Drayton, which I believe was her married name. She also went on to create Bobby Blake and Dolly Drake, Dottie Dimple, Captain Kiddo, which I would like to adopt as a forced nickname that other people must call me. And that's Captain with a K, mind you. Of course it is. And of course, Dottie Dingle. But she also drew the Campbell Soup Kids. And this style actually
1: inspired... Rose O'Neill and her Cupid dolls. And Cupid is short for Cupid, but that's also Cupid with a K. And I like how uh, she said that these Cupid dolls came to her one night in a dream. Yeah. But there is one thing worth noting about all of these chubby cheeked kids in these early comic strips. Uh, there's a paper that Trina Robbins wrote examining the different styles of. Uh, male and female characters in comic strips and cartoons sort of sexual dimorphism and how how that has been depicted in illustration and she talks about how during this era it wasn't just women drawing these chubby cheeked kids either it was just kind of the thing everybody thought they were adorable so you Mm -hmm. also had guys too who were
5: drawing their own dotty dingles and by 1900, there are a number of women-drawn comics in the Sunday newspapers. You've got Louise Quarles's Buns Puns, Grace Casson's Tin Tin Tales for Children, and Agnes Replier's The Filibusters. Ooh. Oh, I just I like to imagine that that's still the the chubby-cheeked... Children, but they're dressed like as, as politicians. Oh, yeah. <laughs> with like wigs and robes and things. Yeah, I like, I
1: like that. Um, and talking about the influence of these women, Trina Robbins told Lisa Hicks, quote, everyone read newspapers and magazines. The women who drew cartoons were nationally famous superstars. People would cut out their strips and save them. You can find scrapbooks with these women's cartoons pasted into them, sometimes colored in by a young girl. Nobody thought it was unusual for a woman to do comics because it wasn't unusual for women and girls to read comics.
5: That's so key that you have girls identifying with the artists and/or the, the artist creations, and that there was nothing weird about it. And the same way that it's nothing, th- there's nothing weird about girls and boys coloring in coloring books. Yeah, forever for generations. There's there was nothing weird or unusual at the time about girls. Collecting and enjoying comic strips, but oh, how that would change! I know, but but luckily, and what I, I love the imagery from this time because luckily, a lot of these cartoonists were staunch suffragists as well, and they used their creations to fight for women's rights.
1: Yeah, Rose O'Neill, in particular, as well as her sister Callista, were known in New York City circles for their suffrage activism and. O'Neal would draw these suffrage postcards that were really widely circulated at the time. And they and she often featured her cupid dolls, or I guess they weren't dolls at the time, Cupies in her cartoons promoting women's rights. Which I mean, talk about catching what is this saying? Catching a fly with honey. I think so. Okay. I gotta get it straight. Catching a
5: bee with honey? A fly.
1: Probably a fly, because the bee, you catch a, oh, bee, yeah, a bee and it are, might sting you. Well the
5: bee makes the honey. So yeah. okay.
1: So Glad we got that worked out. Yeah. So all of that to say, she would use these adorable, chubby-cheeked little characters to be like, I would like
5: Mommy to be able to vote too. Well, for those of you who follow us on Pinterest, and I know that's all of you because you love us, um, we actually do have a suffrage board, a suffragist board on our Pinterest account. And I pinned a whole bunch of cartoons from this era, one of which is one of the Cupid characters, holding a sign that says votes for women. And I, Sally would still probably think that was creepy, but I like it. That sounds adorable. It does sound adorable. But I also pinned a picture. There was a cartoon at the time uh, in the humor magazine Puck that features a woman sitting on top of a stove wearing a crown. And the caption is, woman, queen of the home, Say the anti-suffragists. Yes, queen of a cook stove throne. So it's It's humorous, but it's also kind of sad. And that was from 1914. Well, and Puck, too,
1: featured a lot of pro-suffrage cartoons and also anti-suffrage cartoons. And when you look at the anti-suffrage illustrations, usually, and not surprisingly, the suffragists are always depicted as buck-toothed ugly. They're smoking cigarettes. Oh, heavens. And and the captions are always about how women just want to oppress men. And it usually shows men then in domestic roles, perhaps wearing aprons or caring for the right. babies. or and, and their wife is nowhere to be found because she's gotten the vote and she is then never home, I guess, because she's just voting all the time. I guess the lines are <laughs> are so long at Appar- the ballot.
5: Well, don't you know, Kristen, that 100 years ago, v- elections were held once a week. So <laughs> yeah. women were just constantly out of the home voting. But no, there were a lot of cartoons at the time, too, showing these men who had been abandoned by their wives, who dared to fight for equal rights, uh, you know, with the halo around their head. And it was often paired with the words suffragette Madonna, that apparently when women are out voting and earning rights, that ap- that apparently somehow took rights away from men. Now, this is just one
1: example of the political cartoons from the day, but a really fascinating intersection of women in cartooning and the social movements at the time and women's rights all coming together in this very specific subset of suffrage cartoons and postcards and illustrations that were really everywhere at the time. I mean, these were really powerful drawings.
5: Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, like, the imagery that they that readers are presented with, it's not like they're getting it that many other places. They, they don't have TV. They don't have Pinterest. They don't have the giant time suck that is Pinterest that we have today. But, I mean, yeah, when, you, when you're sharing these cartoons, of course they're going to pack a punch because you're not seeing imagery like this just anywhere.
1: Well, and it's funny that you say they didn't have Pinterest back then and talking about the Internet. Actually, uh, a couple of years ago... There was an anti-suffrage cartoon, to go off on a tangent for a second, that went viral online. It was also published in the magazine Puck, and it was by Harry Grant Dart, and it was from 1908, and the drawing is of a woman's bar where all of the women are smoking and doing all sorts of manly things. And there are, like, women huddled around a stock ticker and, like, a sad baby looking up at his mom (laughs) who's not paying attention because she's smoking and gambling. And it was just fascinating. And the the title of it is, Why Not Go the Limit? Basically saying, like, well, if we give them the vote, then they'll get all these other things, these these manly bourbon-infused cigar-smoke-smelling
5: kinds of things. Well, no, I immediately, upon seeing this image, immediately made it my Facebook cover photo. It's a good one <laughs> because I love it. I love that women who smoke and hang out in bars are considered, like, dangerous to society. Well, I mean, and it
1: just, again, it's so it's so interesting in today's context to think about the power of this imagery, especially as we move into the World War One era. Um, one name that I hadn't heard of before researching for this podcast, whom I was surprised I hadn't run across before— was Nell Brinkley and her Brinkley girls. Because we've talked a lot in the podcast about Charles Dana Gibson and the Gibson girls mm-hmm. and how the Gibson girl at the turn of the century really established the beauty ideal for the time uh, down to her silhouette, the hourglass silhouette. And we talked about her in our cankles and ankles podcast. While well, following on the heels
5: of the Gibson girls, you have Nell Brinkley... And her ladies. Yeah, Nell Brinkley created these beautiful drawings and beautiful works of art. And her women certainly were more active. One was in a canoe, paddling along with the man sitting behind her. And uh, she enjoyed, and her characters enjoyed, so much popularity at the time um, that the Ziegfeld girls... In the famous, they were famous performers, were actually dressed as Brinkley girls. There was even one act where a Ziegfeld girl was dressed as the girl in the canoe with a man behind her. And you could even buy Nell Brinkley curlers to get your hair to curl just like that of her characters.
1: Yeah, unlike the Gibson girls, whose hair was usually in an updo, you know, pinned up. Brinkley girls had big curly hair. They were often more working class. And it, it was also notable to see how quickly Brinkley's career took off because she came to New York in 1907 to draw for the Hearst Syndicate. And by 1908, she was on her way to becoming. A household name mm-hmm. and during World War One she created this series called Golden Eyes and Her Hero Bill which was published in the magazine American Weekly and it was sort of a proto-comic style of a serialized story but it didn't have speech bubbles or panels it would be one full-page gorgeous Art Nouveau illustration of this leading lady Golden Eyes and then it would have uh, the captions, detailed captions underneath. And Golden Eyes and her hero Bill are all about how, while Bill goes off to war during World War One, Golden Eyes goes on adventures
5: with Bill's collie, whose name is Uncle Sam. Right, precursor to Lassie. Um, Golden Eyes is allowed to be an amazing character, and it's so exciting. She ultimately saves Bill from death by the Germans. And uh, Brinkley follows GoldenEyes up in 1920 with Kathleen and the Great Secret, another strip in which the heroine saves the hero. And Trina Robbins, the historian that we mentioned, calls Kathleen another amazingly feminist cliffhanger.
1: Yeah, and after World War One, you have the rise of flapper comics. And Nell Brinkley is sort of credited with inventing this type of comic strip, even though, obviously, she didn't invent the flapper, but sort of playing on this new type of woman. And her contemporaries, as well, had featured flapper characters that weren't so overtly feminist, necessarily, but they were significantly different from, say the women depicted in those anti-suffrage cartoons mm-hmm. that were, you know, painting the the terrifying portrait of what would happen if women got some freedom. Right. Well, it turns out they are just, well, flappers.
5: Yeah. So, for instance, you have artist Ethel Hayes who created strips like Ethel, Flapper Fanny Says, and Marianne. And Flapper Fanny was very much like sort of portraying this emerging teen life, this young woman life and what that entailed. Um, And this is coming from Hogan's Alley. But I I thought that Ethel Hayes was such an interesting character with such a great story. She actually, instead of going to finishing school, went to the Los Angeles School of Art and Design. She convinced her parents to send her there. After that, she won a scholarship to New York's Art Students League, then to the Julian Academy in Paris, Then joined up with the Red Cross during World War I, where she helped rehab soldiers through art classes. And when the soldiers weren't super excited about learning the type of art that she was teaching and they wanted to learn how to draw cartoons, she ended up enrolling herself in a cartooning correspondence course to help teach them. And the head of that school was so impressed with her abilities that he passes her stuff along to the Cleveland Press, which offered her a job in 1923. And now Hayes, getting this job, she assumed that her duties would just end up being stuff like touch-up and layout work, kind of like the women of Disney that Kristen and I talked about last year. But instead, when she showed up, she had the job of illustrating stories, a colleague's stories, of a flapper's hijinks. And so she actually had a lot of control over what she created.
1: Yeah, and after Ethel Hayes, Gladys Parker took over... Flapper Fanny, and she also created the strip Mopsy. And then during World War II, she created Betty G.I., which, I mean, it's a very World War II-sounding comic strip. And speaking of World War II, though, around that time, obviously, Flapper cartoons had become passe. And as that happened, they were replaced largely by teen girl characters, because this is when being a teenager and that whole culture really emerges in the U.S. as well. So that's reflected in the cartoon strips of Virginia Huget, who that is her her pen name. It's a pen name. Do, do you have a, is it a drawing name? Is it the same thing <laughs> for a cartoonist as it is for a writer? A
5: lettering name. An
1: ink name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, regardless, Huget created Campus Capers and Babs in Society. And those were a couple of Trina Robbins' favorite
5: women-drawn cartoons
1: from that time.
5: Now, one woman from the pre-World War II era who we definitely need to highlight before we move on is Jackie Orms, who's the first female African-American career cartoonist who, in 1937, first published Dixie to Harlem, which featured the character Torchie Brown. And it was published in the African-American newspaper The Pittsburgh Courier. And then in
1: 1945, she created the short-lived cartoon Candy, which was published in the Chicago Defender, also an African-American newspaper. And it was about a housemaid who essentially tells it like it is on social issues. And she'll use a similar kind of format in terms of using cartoons to talk about and <laughs> tell it how it is when it comes to social issues in the strip that she's best known for, which is Patty Joe. And Ginger. And this is a single panel series that was also published in the Pittsburgh Courier, which ran weekly for 11 straight years starting in 1945. And it's all about, as you would guess, Patty Joe and Ginger. And Patty Joe is the little sister, and Ginger is the older, fashionable sister. And Patty Joe essentially. I mean, she she's a very, like, straight-talking... It's almost like the out-of-the-mouth-of-babes, yeah. you know? She's the straight-talking character who always has these very sage, b- funny observations about life, about society, about racism, about politics. And it was so popular and influential in its depiction of black girls in particular... The Patty Joe doll, which was sold in the late 1940s, is considered one
5: of the first positive black dolls ever sold in the United States. And then from 1950 to 1954, Orms' last comic strip, Torchy and Heartbeats, featured a mature black woman and activist looking for love. So it's interesting you have this more mature activist coming up right as the civil rights movement starts to get underway.
1: Yeah, and Nancy Goldstein actually wrote an entire book about Jackie Orms called Jackie Orms, the First African-American Woman Cartoonist. And she talks a lot about how her lead characters often women obviously have patty joe ginger torchy candy they usually broke out of the racially stereotyped roles for black people showing them doing things like shopping going to concerts taking music lessons going on road trips etc rather than being pigeonholed in these subservient or racist kinds of roles that they had been previously cast in in white pop culture and They also hit on serious issues, including racism, taxes, labor strikes, McCarthyism, foreign policy, the Cold War, education, and jobs. And Nancy Goldstein told Marketplace that Orms was the first cartoonist of any kind to bring out environmental pollution. I mean, she covered really everything. And a lot of times, especially in Patty, Joe, and Ginger, it's Patty Joe who's making the observations about all these different things. Mm-hmm. And it plays off of Ginger who was, you know, very attractive and sort of going about her business and Patty Joe would would just kind of
5: call out certain things as she saw it. And I mean she was quite a woman. And in a review in American Studies of Goldstein's book about worms, they point out that her character's articulated self-pride and modernity and that they were everyday people going through circumstances that her readers recognized. Again, you know, going back to the fact that she had them doing just normal people activities that they weren't relying on any, you know, racist stereotypes or racist imagery.
0: B.P. added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022.
1: Another example of the powerful influence of cartoons and comics. And that's something that gets talked about a lot today when it comes to analyzing comics and appreciating the history of comics. Because it's sort of a new kind of thing. Because for a long time, people or more serious artists might have brushed off comics as just childish or worthless. They're just cartoons. What does it matter? But clearly... In examples like Jackie Orms's work, it matters a great deal because you're able to say things probably that you couldn't otherwise say right. through this gentler, sometimes, medium.
5: Right. And using Orms as an example, I mean, when you bring people in with different perspectives, it only serves to enrich the whole medium.
1: Because consider for a second how revolutionary that must have been in 1945 to not only have a comic, a single panel comic series penned by a black woman, but it's also featuring almost exclusively black women. Mm-hmm. There was nothing else like it at the time and, and featuring black women as human people and not just Car- caricatures. Right. So... Now we're going to move away from the newspaper cartoons, though, and look more into comic books. Because as we have gotten into the World War II era in our timeline, this is also approaching the golden era
5: of comic books we've been discussing comic strips and single panel comics as they appeared in newspapers but you're probably wondering what we have to say about comic books and the first regular comic book actually appears way before world war ii back in 1922 and comic books actually got a jolt of popularity when gas stations began offering them in the early to mid 30s And then in 1938, the golden age of
1: comic books begins with Action Comics' publication of Action Comics Number 1, debuting a fellow you've probably heard of named
5: Superman. (laughs) John (laughs) Superman. Uh, And then Detective Comics, or DC, would go on to publish Batman, or Batman, And after this, comic book sales shoot up during World War II because they featured themes of good triumphing over evil, pro-American characters and superheroes. And, of course, the first Captain America cover features him battling Hitler. So it's, it's some really satisfying good versus evil black and white clear stuff. And
1: it's super satisfying for this industry because by October 1954, the comics industry would be selling 150 million copies per month of 650 different titles, reaping $90 million per year. And I believe that was $90 million in 1954 money. So they're doing pretty good. Yeah. Well, so what about the women? Where are the women in this era? Oh, well, there, there are a few women of the golden age. So the first woman we need to talk about really emerged in 1939. Her name was June Mills, but she went under the pseudonym Tarpe Mills to sort of conceal her gender because that was the environment at the time. And she got her start in comic books with Daredevil Barry Finn, all about a daredevil named Barry Finn, who had a plan to thwart Hitler and Mussolini. And then she would go on to create Purple Zombie, Devil's Dust, and The Catman, which is not the same as Crazy Cat Lady. Although I wonder if perhaps that was a love interest at one, one point, probably, probably. Also, not
5: to be confused with a scat man. Oh. So, and I, I like the straightforwardness of Purple Zombie, that title. Yeah. Just, you know what you're getting. Yep. Straightforward. Well, so then a couple years later, Mills creates the first major female action hero. So from 1941 to 1952, we get Miss Fury. Of course, she her real identity is socialite Marla Drake, who inherits a magical suit of panther skin that she carries around in her purse Pretty sure she got the panther suit willed to her by her uncle, uh, but the suit was supposed to be worn by a witch doctor, but, you know, you, you can't stop a good costume. I understand. Well, she had gone to a party, and someone
1: else was wearing the same outfit she was. Oh, Lord. And even worse than wearing something only a witch doctor is supposed to wear would be another woman wearing the same outfit as you at the same party. How embarrassing. So... Marla was like, you know what? I'll just wear this panther skin. It's no big deal. And even though her friend, Albino Joe, actual character name, was like, I don't think you should do that. She did. And lo and behold, it had magical powers that turned her into a superhero. But the cool thing about Miss Fury was that the panther skin suit did not get worn all that often. Mm -hmm. She kind of preferred to do her
5: crime fighting in her normal socialite clothes. <laughs> she was very smartly dressed who and she happened to fight Nazis, so. Yeah, just just happened to. But yeah, Miss Fury wasn't actually a comic book. She was a Sunday serial. Oh yeah, this is this is a good point, but still important as a
1: major female action hero. Right. And, and remember, this is new territory for women getting into action comics and
5: cartoons right and she did definitely pave the way for a bunch of future female superhero characters often drawn by men including phantom lady miss mask red tornado lady luck spider widow and wonder woman uh who came around in 1941 thanks to william marston who we've done a podcast about
1: yeah and around the same time that all this is happening in 1940 Dale Messick, who changed her name, like Tarpe Mills, uh, from Dahlia to Dale to make it sound more masculine, she created the action-adventure strip Brenda Starr Reporter, and she was influenced by
5: none other than Nell Brinkley. I actually, for a while, Kristen, in middle school, really kept up with Brenda Starr. Like, every day ran for the paper to go to the comics section to read Brenda Starr. Yeah, I read her in the Sunday Funnies. And you know what? That takes a lot of patience. Because there's a lot of dialogue? I think I would have rather just had a comic book as a child, which I never had, to read it all at once. But that's that's fine. That's fine. Um, But so with this whole trend that we're starting to see with women artists creating female action heroes in comics... They are, like Kristen said, sort of entering a dude territory. It was all fun and games when women were creating the more domestic scenes, the teen girl comics, the the comics for children and featuring animals and things like that. That was all fine. But when you start sort of treading into the action genre, that's when guys basically started turning their backs on some of these female artists. Well, and I wonder, too, if it had to do with just
1: how successful this new-ish comic book industry was. You know, and it seemed like women were kind of creeping in on that. And Trina Robbins told Lisa Hicks um, for Collectors Weekly, quote, up until then, nobody had resented the other women cartoonists, but she was getting into men's territory, the action strip. Before Dale Messick, women cartoonists all stuck with domestic situations, pretty girls, cute kids, that kind of thing. She was intruding, and they resented it. As a result, men in the industry were not particularly complimentary about her art and she felt very neglected by them. And this would last well into her career, even though she was wildly successful within the cartoon or within the comic industry, I should say, she often felt like an outsider.
5: Well, yeah. And then once we get back to World War II, as with so many industries in the United States... Women sort of filled a void. The comic book industry became slightly friendlier to women while the guys were off overseas fighting.
1: Yeah, this is the same kind of thing that we talked about in our Women of Disney podcast. Um, in that during World War I, you have more women being employed, not necessarily to create these comic heroes, but a lot of them were employed as pencilers and inkers, sometimes as letterers, because they're, I mean, there are all these different layers involved in creating a comic. It's not just one person doing all of the work. And Wesley Chennault talks about this a lot in his thesis, Working the Margins, Women in the Comic Book Industry. And, I mean, he gets very granular about women During the golden era and during World War II. And he says that Fiction House Publishing Company hired the most women, including Fran Hopper and Lily Renee, who created Mista of the Moon, which was all about this moon woman who had a robot dog who has the superpower of possessing all the knowledge of the universe. That
5: would be so handy. I could finally fly a helicopter. Yeah. And you'd have a robot dog. A robot
1: dog. It wouldn't shed. But... D.C. fans out there, brace yourselves because during World War II, oh, I'm sorry, during the entire 1940s, Elizabeth Burnley Bentley was the only known female artist to have worked at what was then National Periodicals, which would then be rolled into D.C., and she did lettering and penciling of backgrounds uncredited for both Batman and Superman.
5: Yeah, Marvel and DC definitely both had the worst record of female artist employment compared with their contemporaries, but writers fared a little bit better. And that's kind of across the board, I would say, that writers and editors tend to fare better um, than the artists. So what happens then after World War II?
1: Well, after World War II, superhero comics decline in popularity. I mean, you have soldiers coming home, so that puts a dent In sales to begin with, just because, I mean, soldiers abroad in foxholes, you know, at camps overseas gobbled up comic books to keep them entertained. And then on top of that, too, once you don't have, say, Hitler and Mussolini for Captain America to fight, I mean, the the entire landscape is changing. And what's interesting to see is how, in an attempt to attract new readership, you do have more female characters emerge but it's
5: all focused around romance and domesticity with maybe a little bit of crime fighting here and there. Yeah, and we also see the renewed interest in teen comic strips because, you know, Archie had launched in 1941, which was the same year as Hilda Terry's influential strip Tina and I mean, we've talked on the podcast before about post-war social anxieties and the need to sort of reassert a traditional masculinity and a traditional femininity, women leaving the workplace, going back home to take care of the men who've returned.
1: Well, and as we talked about in our podcast on whether World War II was all that great for Rosie the Riveters, and it basically how after they come home, the women were expected to leave the jobs that so that men could have jobs to take back up. And the same thing happened in the comic industry. After World War II, women's employment in the comic industry dropped by about two-thirds, and the women who stayed were usually kicked out of action-adventure titles and then redirected to teen and romance serials, or some of them just moved into children's illustration. We're like, I'm just getting out of this industry
5: altogether. And so it's right after the war in 1946 that we get the National Cartoonist Society that forms. That sounds cool, right? Oh, well, it's open to you if you're a man. And in 1949, Hilda Terry puts up a fight. She called for the inclusion of women or told them, if you're not going to include us, maybe you should just change your name to the National Men Cartoonist Society.
1: Yeah, Hilda Terry was not pleased. Um, But the good news is, in 1950, uh, Al Cap, who created Lil Abner, as well as other, obviously male, because they were all male, members of the National Cartoonist Society, came to bat for women's inclusion. And so the society finally had to open up its doors To let
5: some women in, although there weren't that many. Yeah. Well, so we've already seen, you know, Kristen mentioned the declining numbers that we see by 1950 that more women are just going into other arenas. But 1954, something happens that makes things even more difficult for really everybody, not just women. But, in nineteen fifty four we get the publication of uh, Frederick Wortham's Seduction of the Innocent, which blamed comic books for corrupting young minds. And that leads to the comics code, which basically sanitized mainstream comics. So it wanted to get root out, any sex, any violence, any anything that could potentially poison young minds. So this is not unlike every fight we have ever had, every generation of forever whether it's about music or video games. But in this particular instance, it was all about what comics were doing to young children.
1: And we talked in our podcast a while back on Wonder Woman about how Wortham and the Comics Code was responsible for also sanitizing Wonder Woman. You see her shift even more to romantic storylines, and they were concerned in... Wonder Woman in particular, about overtones of lesbianism and bondage. And so, of course, with the comics code in the 60s, all of a sudden Wonder Woman is all about her boyfriend and clothes. And it's really with the publication of Seduction of the Innocent, which, I mean, this book, I mean, it wasn't just a book that a lot of parents read and they freaked out about. I mean, there were Senate meetings about comic books. Mm -hmm. Um, So... Heading into the 1960s, the golden age is over. Mainstream comics are getting a lot more sanitized. They're rather boring, comparatively. And this is ushering in an underground comics with an X
5: revolution. And that Comics with an X revolution is something that Kristen and I will delve into in our next episode. So stay tuned. Yeah, but now we want to hear
1: from classic cartoon and comics fans and cartoonists listening. MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can tweet us at MomStuffPodcast. Let us know your favorite cartoonists, your comic books. Were there classic era women that we didn't talk about, but we should Let us know. You can email us. You can tweet us. You can also message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now.
0: BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico.
1: Zigazoo, the world's
5: largest social network. For kids! (laughs) Download the Zigazoo app today.
1: So I've got a letter here from Eleanor about our two-parter on Lady Detectives. She writes, I just finished listening to part two of Murder She Watched. She said, I love a good detective mystery, especially when the main character is a woman. I loved Jessica Fletcher and how she made the local sheriff eat his words every week. I know it's difficult to fit all shows into an episode, but I wanted to mention a few of my favorites that I feel are definitely worth watching. The first is Hetty Wainthrop Mysteries. It's a British show that stars Patricia Routledge as Hetty Wainthrop, a private detective. You may remember her in her iconic role as Hyacinth Bouquet in Keeping Up Appearances. I do remember her in that role. Uh, Because of her work on that show, she's seen mainly as a comedic actress, but her range of talent is huge, and her versatility is definitely displayed in this show. She has a male sidekick, the teenage Jeffrey, played by the also-teenage Dominic Monaghan. If memory serves, it was his first role. The series is from the mid-90s. The other one worth a watch is simply called Vera. It's also a British show, and you may be able to watch it on your local PBS station, Vera is about a head detective, Vera Stanhope. She's in her 60s, and unlike most women detectives, she does not wear fashionable clothes, does not have her hair done at a salon, and wears sensible shoes. She's witty and funny and grumpy and generous and very intelligent. Of all women detectives, she's the one that feels like a real person. The episodes are entertaining and well-written. That's it, I guess. I love the podcast. Thank you for covering a subject so close to my heart. And thanks for the recommendations,
5: Eleanor. And I have a letter here from Ashley. She says, "'Growing up, I wanted to be a detective. I loved Charlie's Angels when I was in elementary school. Kate Jackson, Sabrina, was my favorite. I was in her fan club, and the autographed photo I received was my prized possession. Then along came Cagney and Lacey, and I had new role models during my middle and high school years.' But I grew up in a conservative environment where I was expected to pursue a white-collar career suitable for a woman, so I followed a different career path. Part of me still regrets that I didn't become a police officer, which is probably why I can't get enough of watching cop shows on TV. I watched many of the shows you mentioned and thought you made a lot of good points about the characters and storylines. I also hope to see more not-so-feminine characters in this genre in the future. I watched The Closer, but always thought Brenda Lee was too syrupy, not to mention the overly southern accent. I much prefer Captain Sharon Rader on Major Crimes, and think Mary McDonnell at age 62 is fantastic in that role. Major Crimes also includes Kieran Giovanni as Detective Amy Sykes. It's nice that her character is a military veteran, but of course she looks like a model. I consider Rizzoli and Isles to be mindless fun rather than a serious cop drama. I think the producers purposely allow viewers to entertain hope of a romantic relationship between the two, and beautiful Angie Harmon as the Butch character makes me laugh. She put Butch in quotes, by the way. I'm looking forward to watching some of the other shows you mentioned that were not on my radar. In conclusion, I loved these two episodes and really enjoy your podcast. Keep up the good work. And thank you, Ashley. We appreciate the letter. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us.
1: MomStuffAtHowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources so you can follow along with us, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com.
6: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.